1: Today's podcast is presented by EPRA, the European Public Real Estate Association. Facing global megatrends like green transition and aging population, how will listed real estate contribute to a sustainable future and financial security for Europe? What started with a virus so small, your eyes couldn't see it, has become an economic crisis so big That you simply cannot miss it.
2: Welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor, and it was a big week here in Brussels with European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen unveiling a 750 billion euro economic recovery plan. The new recovery fund would be financed by borrowing and bolted onto a revised EU budget worth another 1.1 trillion euros over seven years. We'll get into all of that in just a moment and later in the podcast we'll have some light relief. You'll hear from the creator of a comedy TV series set in the European Parliament. But first, to walk us through the details of the recovery proposal and sketch out what may happen next, let's bring in our very own pan-European panel of political reporters. So joining us this week for the podcast panel is our Brussels politics reporter and budget specialist, Lily Bayer. Hi, Lily. Hi, everyone. Uh, Reem is in Paris. Hi, Reem. Bonjour. And Matt's in Berlin. Hi, Matt. Howdy. Okay, well, it doesn't get more German than that. Um, let's start with uh, you know the big the big topic, which was the recovery fund uh, proposal, or as the European Commission uh, decided it should be called, perhaps because there's some um, Star Trek fans there.
1: Next generation EU worth seven hundred But
2: obviously, a, a big announcement, a big day, uh, Lily. Yesterday, can you just briefly kind of break down? The plan? What were the kind of headlines in terms of what the Commission is proposing uh, to kind of power Europe's economic recovery from the crisis?
0: So it really was a kind of historic day for budget watchers because uh, for the first time, what the commission proposed was a dual structure. So they proposed a $1.1 trillion seven-year EU budget, but on top of that, they proposed a four-year special instrument, a recovery instrument uh, meant to address the impact of the coronavirus crisis, which would mean the commission borrowing on behalf of the EU and creating this fund of 750 billion euros. Most of that money would be distributed as grants and some of it as loans. The money will
1: be raised by temporarily lifting the own resources ceiling to allow the commission to use its very strong credit rating to borrow money on the financial markets. This is an urgent and exceptional necessity for an urgent and exceptional crisis.
2: So those are the kind of headline figures, but we should remember it is just a proposal which is going to have to now go to uh, the EU's member countries. They're going to have to come to some kind of agreement. It will also have to be signed off by the European Parliament. But those are not the only uh, people who would be involved. So can you just kind of talk us through the next steps for this, Lily?
0: So the next thing is that the leaders of the 27 EU countries need to get together and discuss this proposal. They will do that in June, though uh, German Chancellor Angela Merkel said yesterday that she does not expect a deal in June. Uh, A part of the reason why is because this is such a complicated proposal. Uh, Some officials were talking about something around 2000 pages for all the rules and regulations that come along with um, this kind of plan. And a lot of officials that I was talking to last night also said that despite all the statements that they have been putting out, they actually need quite a lot of time now to analyze what's actually in all of these pages and what it means for them. So there will be a couple of big fights. The biggest one, I think, will be the grants versus loans debate. So countries like France and Germany and Italy want the bulk of the money, if not all of it, to be distributed as grants, whereas some countries that we call the frugals, like the Netherlands and Sweden, would prefer that borrowed money be distributed directly as loans to member states, which they would individually be responsible for repaying. Um, They also have some unlikely allies, like Hungary, that doesn't want to be responsible for paying money that would go primarily to countries like Italy. So this will be quite a big battle. Another fight is how the money would actually be distributed, what methodology would be used. Uh, would it be mostly things like unemployment that will go into this formula for distributing the money? Would it be changes to GDP? Um, would the commission take into account, or rather, would the EU take into account that um, poor countries like Bulgaria perhaps don't want to be paying for the recovery of much wealthier states like Italy? Um, the commission has been put forward a methodology, but that is very much up for debate and expect leaders to be scrutinizing that very carefully.
2: Right. And just one more um, thing, and we should say probably that, that June European Council, as far as we understand it, probably will not be in person, which also makes this stuff harder because normally it would be like a kind of grand bazaar where everybody turns up with all their aides and assistants and they try and, and hammer out a deal, you know, over maybe a period of days possibly. Uh, but it doesn't look like that's going to be uh, possible in the very immediate term. But the other point here is, Lily, that the the mechanism they're using to allow them to go to the market and raise the money, which you may or may not want to try and explain here. Um, But basically, that has to be approved um, by all the individual countries, right? And that's not straightforward either.
0: Right, that's actually one of the most complicated issues. And I was actually just at a briefing with the Budget Commissioner, Johannes Hahn, and he made it very clear, he was very realistic, that this is a complicated process. Because it's not only that all... 27 EU leaders need to come to uh, a unanimous decision, but the majority of national parliaments will need to vote on the mechanism for providing guarantees to raise the money on the markets, and this will be incredibly difficult, especially in countries like Belgium.
2: Really? Why Belgium in particular?
0: Um, because Belgium has a very uh, complicated regionalized system, um, and even Commissioner Hand mentioned, mentioned Belgium as an example. Really? Yes, already
2: got, they're already worried about Belgium, right? Because I think probably veterans of these things will remember. I believe it was the CETA deal that hung in the balance over the. Um, with the Walloon Parliament uh, suddenly having the kind of deciding vote. So I don't know if we're going to get uh, all the way down that road again. But all of this, I suppose, is just to say that this is, although it was very much presented as here's the plan, it's kind of a starting point and we don't really know where this is all going to end up. But Matt, you spoke to, Lily mentioned uh, the frugals, uh, you know, the countries who are not happy uh, with this model. And you spoke to Austrian Chancellor uh, Sebastian Kurz, yesterday, who's kind of emerged as one of the leaders of that faction. You know, what was his take on it? And where do you see them
3: landing at the end of this? Well, I think he was trying to be diplomatic, to be honest, and say that there were aspects of the plan that he found to be positive, he and the other frugals, as they even have started calling themselves but that there's still a lot of negotiation to be done here. And he described it really as a starting point, not at all an end point. And as has just said, this is going to take probably many months to get through. By the time the Walloons come around to approving this, I think the Frugals will have made a lot of headway in clawing back some of the things that they wanted. And for them, the main issue really is what is the division here between Grants money that doesn't have to be paid back and loans and they want a much higher proportion of loans than grants. And I I think that they also feel a little bit like the commission is trying to pull the wool over everyone's eyes here because the proposal that was put forth yesterday for the recovery fund was expected to be a 500 billion euro proposal with some kind of new calculus regarding this division of loans and grants. And what the commission did was come out and say, well, we have 500 billion in grants, which is exactly what the French and Germans had already proposed. And in addition to that, we're going to tack on 250 billion in loans that countries can apply for the issue with that is that there are already existing loan facilities that countries like Italy or Spain could tap with the European stability mechanism, the bailout fund. And so it's not really clear why they would need, you know, an additional avenue here, especially since these countries already have too much debt, and have been going around saying the last thing that they want to do is take out more loans. So I think that the frugals are going to really try to get into that 500 billion sum and make part of that credits as well. So we'll see you know how how they do on that front but time is certainly on their side and it, the longer this goes I think the more luck that they'll have.
2: Right, because basically they'll be under time pressure to get this done before the end of the year, and so the others will move just to get a deal, just to get it done.
3: It's it's also worth remembering that these countries that are, you know, the countries most in need need the money now. Mm. And I don't know how things are going to look in the fall, which seems to be the earliest possible date that we could get some kind of resolution of this to be realistic. And, you know, you could see sort of political upheaval in the meantime. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a pretty dicey situation, I would say all around. Yeah. Reem, how,
2: how I guess the Elysee must be feeling pretty pleased because as Matt says, you know, the, the commission basically seemed to copy and paste the 500 billion from the, the Merkel-Macron deal that we talked about last week.
4: Yeah, I mean, it's fair to say that French officials are are quite happy with themselves. You know, words like historic, unprecedented, uh, game-changing breakthroughs were thrown around uh, yesterday by various uh, various officials and also fighting words. You know, they were very explicit about the fact that they are not ready to compromise uh, on having the entire 500 billion be uh, doled out in grants. They also feel very emboldened because... It's not the French position this time around. It's the Franco-German position as uh, explicited in an initiative that is written and that Merkel herself presented very publicly. Uh, So, you know, this time around, I think the negotiations are going to be different because France isn't there on its own, which is also why they feel so emboldened.
2: Mm. So, Lily, as we said, this is all tied up with, uh, you know, the multi-annual financial framework, the the EU's seven-year budget, which is a very complex thing in itself. It's something you've been covering very closely for the past couple of years. We got to a summit in February that failed to reach a deal on that. What, What are the pluses and minuses, I suppose, in terms of getting to a deal by binding this together, by basically bolting on the recovery fund to the overall budget?
0: So I think the big plus that a lot of member states see is that before, two years ago, when the Commission first put forward its proposal for the 2021-2027 budget, the big issue we were all talking about is the Brexit gap. So the fact that the EU would have a lot less money available without the UK and that a lot of popular programs would face cuts as a result or partially as a result of that. Now, in part because of the crisis and because of this push to do um, unprecedented borrowing on the markets, a lot of EU states are actually able to make a case for funding for popular programs like like agriculture or cohesion using that borrowed money that otherwise they probably would not have gotten if the crisis did not happen so for for many officials I think that is the bright side on the other hand I do hear from some diplomats concern that because the recovery instrument was fused together with the long-term budget a negotiation that was already incredibly complicated and incredibly difficult difficult, could become uh, even more complex and more delayed. And we could end up uh, with a situation that EU budget programmes would not be all ready to go on January 1st, in part because of haggling over the recovery. Mm.
2: Well, that kind of leads us on, in a way anyway, to another kind of big um, topic, because it's so important for the economies of a lot of these countries. And that is Tourism and and the summer holidays, which, you know, are fast approaching or, or would be in a normal year, and uh, it's a big debate here in Brussels and elsewhere as to whether, you know, people are really going to be able to take anything like uh, a normal summer holiday. This also gives me the chance to shoehorn in a a reference to something which actually Reem, Matt and Lily all took part in, which was a newsroom-wide effort to try and look at communities all across Europe, particularly away from capital cities, and we had several which were, you know, tourist towns or small towns or cities that uh, rely very heavily on tourism you know there are countries such as croatia where it's a huge chunk of gdp so the question is are we going to be able to have a normal uh, tourist season and if not you know how are those countries going to fair. Uh, But Lily, I don't know if you wanted to chime in because you spoke to the mayor of Galway, I think, in Ireland for that piece and that's a big tourist town as well, right? They must be very worried.
0: Uh, They're incredibly worried in Galway about the state of the hospitality industry and I can tell you from first-hand experience, I was there last year on vacation and it's a great place to visit, um, so many restaurants uh, and things to do but right now, uh, from what I heard from the mayor, essentially those businesses can't really function because all the tourists are gone. Uh, It's particularly difficult for them because they also host a lot of festivals, and even if people wanted to attend, they just can't travel there, they can't get there. But I'm also hearing when we speak about travel that business travel has been hindered. I was just talking to a member of the European Parliament from Portugal who said that she wanted to come in person for the big budget unveiling, but she wasn't sure if she could because there were no direct flights from Lisbon to Brussels.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And that does bring us back to the recovery. And it's one question I wanted to give everyone a chance to weigh in on, which is, has the Commission actually uh, come out of all of this pretty well? I mean, Lily, you followed this debate all the way along. It was the Commission that first floated the idea of using the, uh, the EU budget, the long term budget as a kind of vehicle to kind of drive the recovery. So are they feeling... You know pretty pleased in the Berlin.
0: Uh, my sense I was at the Berlin today is that they're quite happy with their proposal. They know there will be a lot of challenges and difficulties around it, especially in terms of the timeline and making sure that all the national parliaments that have to sign off do so on time. but it seems that they are pretty confident that they put forward something that as a starting point for negotiations is pretty good.
2: Right. Matt, should we be giving Ursula von der Leyen the, the, the thumbs up here? She's. I heard I heard that a German newspaper said she will be the most powerful European Commission president ever, just because of the amount of money that
3: she will be kind of presiding over if this goes through. I know that's a very interesting, interesting uh, theory. I think it's too early to say, to be honest. I, I think that they had a, a good week. The presentation seems to have gone well. But, you know, it's it's a it's a risky strategy. Uh, Reem, how how are they feeling about the Commission and about
2: about von der Leyen in, in France at the moment?
4: I mean the French definitely feel like the Commission has as as the saying goes, gone big, it hasn't gone home, right? They also said something very interesting yesterday. There were there were two points they made, which is one that of course the frugal position is a very legitimate position, one that should be respected, but that also we shouldn't forget that it's the EU with twenty seven countries. It's not the EU with four countries and that the frugals can't veto everything, just as the French and the Germans have to also play a wider role. So it was interesting to hear it that way and to say, actually, we have to find a solution that works for everyone in order to save this European project. And that's the second part of it, which it was the first time I heard an official actually put it this way in explaining why this ability to go and borrow money as the EU from the markets is so historic. And important, according to this French official, uh, it's because it gives the signal to markets around the world and to the world that the EU 27 are planning on staying together for the next, you know, decades. Because they're they're talking about borrowing money for 30 years with a maturity of, for, of 30 years. And I thought it was a very interesting way of putting it, especially as Brexit is still under underway.
2: Okay. Well, there's going to be lots for us to to watch and to talk about uh, in the months ahead uh, with Lily as well, following it all particularly closely. So uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, Reem, Matt, Lily, thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And no.
1: So what we want is a border between the UK and Jenny. Right, yes. yes. The EU, yeah. yeah. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Take back control, yeah. Yeah. So what we don't want is a border between Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland. We don't, know. No. Well, no, because... We did, and when we did, we sort of had a civil war, so... Oh, well, we don't want that, do we? No. No. So the question is, where do we put the border? Right, um... Ah, that is hard. Yeah. I don't know. Where? OK.
2: This is a scene from Parlement, a comedy TV series about the European Parliament. The show, which was made for French TV, but is in both French and English, centres around a newbie parliamentary assistant, Sammy Cantor, who starts working for a less than impressive MEP from France. Sammy ends up spending most of the 10 episode season trying to pass an amendment to a fisheries bill about shark finning. It's funnier than that sounds. The comedy lies in the complications and misunderstandings of someone trying to figure out how lawmaking in the EU actually works. And our producer, Cristina Gonzalez, and Maya de la Baume, who covers the European Parliament for Politico, had a virtual chat with the show's creator, Noé Debré.
5: So I grew up in Strasbourg. So, um, you know, the the European Parliament was always somewhere in the landscape. And uh, I was quite curious to about it and you know what was going on inside and uh, I started to document myself and you know talking with people I found that it was really good material for a tv show and specifically a comedy
6: and so what what are the things in your view about the European parliament that uh, you thought make it good for comedy
5: well, you know, so many people in this place from so many different, you know, from so many different places, obviously, and the complexity of it makes, makes it funny some, somehow, I think. What the show is mostly about is like how complex it is and how, and all the difficulties that the characters have to navigate it. And so that's sort of a classic comedy argument. And then, you know, lots of room for misunderstandings. And what's great about the European Parliament uh, for me, and I guess for most of the the audience, at least in France, is that no one has really a clue about how, you know, what's going on and how it's happening. And so everything everything you're going to film is going to be interesting.
7: Well, and maybe you could take us a bit behind the scenes in terms of the making of the series. Maybe you can start with telling us who you consulted with or spoke with in the process of of writing this series.
5: So it happens that the producer of my show is uh, Fabienne Servant-Schreiber, who is the wife of um, former MEP uh, and recently deceased um, Henri Weber, who was a member of the uh, Socialist Party in in France and an eminent politician. And so uh, that obviously opened some doors. So at the time uh, I met, you know, I came to see him and his assistants uh, in Strasbourg and in Brussels and uh, I hang out. And actually, that's how I uh, that's how I heard of that amendment is that there was like, um, uh, you know, a paper lying on the table of the assistant. And I was like, what, what's that about? And so she explained to me, it was like a paper from some NGO about finning because the, there was going to be a vote. And so she explained to me what the what the story was, and I thought, oh, that's great, because who wants to defend sharks, you know? Like, who's going to, you know, (laughs) who's going to take on that? And, uh, you know, it sounds, so it's all already funny. And then later, I I met, uh, so, Maxime Caligaro and Pierre Dorac, and that was definitely a game-changer for me, because, so, Maxime is now a political advisor, former uh, assistant, and Pierre works, is a public servant. Uh, So, they know I mean, in my view, they know everything there is to know about the institutions and they know a lot of people. And so uh, what we did, and that was pretty fun, uh, actually, is that we met in Brussels and sometimes in Strasbourg to write with another writer who's like a comedy writer from the UK. And uh, we would meet there and we would get like some assistant to make us um, pass, you know, passes like accreditations to get in the building. And we would just like walk around the building, push a door. Oh, that's that room is empty. We would walk in and write from inside the parliament. And then, you know, uh, for lunch, we would have lunch with assistant, you know, whoever would agree to talk to us. And, you know, we would try to hear stories and get inspired
7: sounds a bit like being a journalist right Maya <laughs> walking, yeah, exactly. walking around the parliament and <laughs> typing out text but yes, um yes, I can...
5: except except we we people can tell us anything you know because we're never going to use it per se we're just gonna you know like use it in another way and
7: I was gonna say were they very receptive to speaking with you once they figured out what it was that you were doing
5: Look, yes I, I thought so they were very excited and happy that we would you know, make a show about that because obviously the
6: they they want more visibility. Clearly,
5: <laughs> clearly, I mean that's the right. That's the main issue yeah. of European institution is like how publicize what they do, uh, and um, and so the uh, everybody understand that fiction and the TV show can be a great vehicle for that.
7: But did the Parliament see this as an opportunity for them? I mean, can you talk a bit about the process of convincing them to allow you to actually film? In certain parts of the institutions,
5: yeah, that was something else. That was kind of that was trickier because you know you've seen the show. For the for those of you who've seen the show, it's quite insolent. It's quite you know we don't we don't pull any punches, and that's what was on paper. You know, like so, it's not like we we treat them with like you know saying we're going to shoot something very clean and then. So yeah, we there was a whole campaign by the producer to uh, get authorization. It was look we we didn't have a choice actually because we didn't we we had like a very small budget, so there was no way we were gonna recreate any of it so if we couldn't shoot in the parliament, basically the show wasn't happening and um so we 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 yeah we did politics you know we got like uh Uh, over the, how do you say, over the spectrum kind of uh, alliance with like French politicians, German politicians from the right, from the left, from the Greens. And then we went to the administration with that. And then we got people to call and to say, yeah. And so it was really, it was quite, it was actually quite fun. What were officials from the parliament? What did they
6: want? I mean, because they refused... They didn't want you to shoot in the parliament.
5: They didn't want us to shoot in Brussels, in the parliament, because uh, it's too, you know, they didn't want us to be in the way of people working. And then it happened that there was uh, some room in the region, committee of regions. And uh, so we got some room over there and then people over there were very nice to let us shoot, of course, with the approval of, I mean, the parliament. And then... We could go and shoot in Strasbourg, which was amazing, because as you know, the the building is mostly empty. And that was great, because it's so beautiful, the building. And so we we just had to convince them that we weren't there to hurt them, and that even though it was satire, it was comedy, still there was something that they could get out of it. When it comes to the
6: show, how it was received by, by the public in general, because... Uh, I laughed a lot when I saw this show, and I was happy to see a lot of scenes that I myself, as a journalist, see in real life. But clearly, some people um, saw also, you know, some of, of the characters maybe appeared a little bit like caricatures. That's what some of them told me. So, how do you react to the, to these criti- to this criticism?
5: Look, I find it you know very fair that people would uh, object to some representation in the show because of course like you know we show like a main the main MEP we show is like incredibly you know lazy incompetent and a bit ca- a bit of a coward and it's you know it's a comedy trope and it's i i can see how that can that can sound problematic but what i want to emphasize i mean what the way we thought about it is that that's just the um, how do you say, the wallpaper of the show, in a way, you know, those characterizations are just the wallpaper. And then if you look at the deep story, uh, what what the show is really about and how the season unfolds and where it gets to, it's very much the story of a guy who's like, doesn't really have any opinion about the European institutions, don't really care, don't think he can, you know, act or be part of it in any way. And then he's thrown in it and sort of, Get excited and get a bit obsessed, and then at the end he managed to actually do something and make a difference. And I think that's you know that's sort of a inspiring story.
6: Mm. But you play on stereotypes that still exist in the parliament that maybe existed more before, like the French MEP. Clearly, for me, when I saw him, I laughed, but I I also realized that it was more of the the MEP from from the past rather than what is happening now because I think most MEPs are younger and a little more you know hard-working but um, do you think that this might show an image of the EU that is not exactly
5: what people would want to show today? I agree with you that um, I think the last election also sort of change the representation that we have. It happens that the show is supposed to happen before, like historically, if you look at it. Then about like giving a bad image, because that's what it's about. Then from what I gathered from the reaction from the general audience is more like, it looks like, you know, people that are pro-Europe think the show is great and think it's like great to see. to 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 be able to identify and uh, it's very characters very endearing and um, it's interesting and stuff and then people who are sceptic about Europe see it and see say the same thing they say oh that's exactly what I thought you know and so uh, in a way it's fine with me you know because I don't think a show should be uh, propaganda I don't think it should be like trying to give a good image or whatever or a bad image for that matter Uh, I think what the show the main point of the show On that level is that it just, I think it educates about the process. And I think that's the most important in a way.
7: One of the clips we wanted to share with the audience was, um, well, maybe you can set it up, but it has to do with these stereotypes that we were talking about um, a bit or these caricatures
5: it's an assistant, Rose, who's trying her, her MEP is very depressed. She's a Brexit MEP, and she's very depressed because they, she got everything she needed, you know, everything she ever wanted, which is like the referendum. And now they're leaving the EU. And so as for everybody who got what they wanted, she's completely depressed and because she has lack of aim, you know. And so Rose is trying to make her busy. And uh, she suggests that she finds a solution to the Irish border.
1: You could try work. Maybe. That's what people do to stop thinking about life. There's a vote on finning this afternoon at the fisheries committee. That could work. boring. Fish are boring. Fish are boring. Um, Brexit. You love Brexit. Yeah. <laughs> Good. There's... Negotiations are stuck and it's chaos in Westminster. <laughs> you think? Yeah. Yeah, you... Mind like yours could be a game changer.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. It's a good idea. Yeah, yeah. You know those technocrats there—they don't know they're left from their right, really. Exactly. <laughs> Great. So, good. Yeah. Okay, they're well, good. But but what? But what will I focus on? Oh, um, d- d- uh, d- Irish border. Yeah. yeah.
0: Right. Okay. Yeah. Irish
5: border. Okay.
1: Well, but but, but what's the problem with the Irish border?
5: So (laughs) we uh, talked about that scene. One day we met with an assistant who was um, an Irish assistant. It was actually, no, sorry. It was a British assistant from Northern Ireland. And uh, we were talking about him. So how the last months have been with like coming up for Brexit and all of this. And uh, we told him of that scene that we had written. And he was like, who did you talk to? Like how do you know? And uh, and because you actually witnessed that very scene.
6: Maybe Noid, just uh, tell us a little more where where people can watch it, and will there be maybe more episodes? Do you are you thinking about a follow up or? Because you leave us with a cliffhanger, I must say. Yeah.
7: <laughs> we won't give it away for people who haven't seen it, but
5: that's TV for you. So, yeah, well, the, the show is uh, broadcasted uh, So since uh, early May in France on France.tv. And uh, it's now in Belgium on BOTV. And uh, it's going to be in Germany in June on ARD. And somehow on some platform, but I don't remember the name, but I assume it's the platform of ARD. And uh, yeah, and look, I, I I hope the show is gonna um, be sold elsewhere. And for uh, as for the second season, yeah, we're talking about it right now, uh, and it should be happening. It's not completely set yet, but uh, we have tons of ideas. There's there are tons of things that we haven't, you know, shown. There's no journalist for one in the in the show. Uh, you probably noticed.
7: There you go, Maya. He's
5: casting.
6: <laughs> yeah sure think of me please yeah, no,
5: but, but journalists are really fun archetypes and we, we didn't have room for journalists in the first season so I hope we get to, to put some, some in the second season
2: that was Noé Dubreuil, the creator of the TV series Parlement. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential. Would you believe it? A whole political podcast without one mention of Dominic Cummings. And they said it couldn't be done. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. And please take a moment right now, if you can, to rate us by clicking some stars or leaving a review. You can also email us your feedback. The address is podcast at political And a special thanks to you, our listeners, especially if you listen right to the end. We've just had another record month of listening figures. We really appreciate you being there in such numbers, in such strange and difficult times. We'll be back next Thursday with another episode. But until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for
3: listening.